The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Hello and welcome once again to a new episode of Serious Fun here on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network. I am, as always, your host with the soul of a regretful 100-plus-year-old man, Dr. Brian Carr. And this week, just like the last episode, we are once again breaking down the latest entry in the Marvel Disney Plus streaming pantheon, Falcon and Winter Soldier. This is the second series after WandaVision to come out on the platform, and this one features the aftermath of the events of Endgame in a different direction. Um, This time, we are looking at how Sam the Falcon Wilson deals with the legacy of being given the Captain America shield at the end of that film. This is a series that uh, really kind of reaches for the stars in terms of its relevancy and subject matter, And the question becomes, does it really get there? And, well, that's what we're going to talk about. There's a lot of stuff to uh, unpack in this one, and this episode is also a bit longer than the WandaVision one for that reason. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, We have a fantastic panel here, uh, backed by popular demand. uh, UWGB history professor and current associate provost, Dr. Cliff Ganyard and my research assistant and UWGB.com mass media student, Emily Fecto, are with me to break down the Falcon and the Winter Soldier here on Serious Fun. Oh, and uh, by the way, spoilers, like immediately, right off the bat. Enjoy. So um, I, I want to just share real quick before we start. There was a there was a bit that came out about this show um, that was I was not aware of when I sent out the original notes, and I have to kind of pull it up here. So there was an interview um, on io9 with one of the showrunners, and I, I was kind of thinking like, well, maybe they had intended all the stuff with Walker to be kind of like a, a grim portent, kind of like a sinister sort of like what's going to come next. That is apparently not their intent. Um, mm. like that was not what they were aiming for. Uh, and so the quote basically says, um, you know, uh, he uh, that Medal of Honor was the worst day of his life. Something, you know, we realized something there happened there. He's not proud of. He has imposter syndrome, so he's a little mm. bit of damage. Um, he, he does something horrific. And then the Contessa comes in and picks up the pieces and you hope for him. And that's the most important thing. Um, and, and he makes this decision to abandon vengeance. I don't know. Like, I, I kind of feel like they, this is something we can talk about, but I, I really feel like they kind of dropped the ball on this whole thing pretty heavily after reading that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or that comment is really contrived, Yeah. you know, and they're trying to maybe, well, I don't know what the purpose of it would be. I, if I was the showrunner, I, I'd, I'd want to, uh, encourage some mystery and uncertainty yeah. Uh, about what's going on there um, but in that line well we can talk about this but just sure. really quickly you know um, walker's interrogation at the end of episode four 
there's a scene where he mutters under his breath something like, you have no idea how hard it is to be Captain America, mm-hmm. um, which could, I could see that fitting in with that idea of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Something went bad on, you know, the day he got his Medal of Honor. So, yeah, anyway. Okay. Yeah, they're trying to kind of have it their cake and eat it too with him a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, they want to kind of make him sort of a you know worrisome character, but also give him a heroic arc, and that's one of the things that didn't really work for me. But that's something we can talk about for sure. Yeah, I wonder if that too is. Uh, I, I read something last night too about Russell uh, Wyatt Russell. Yeah, and um, you know the comment from one of the directors or showrunners was that he really brought more to the character than they expected. Right. Um, and you know, that may have changed what they were trying to do. Honestly, you know, they may have started out thinking, well, this is just, you know, a dark reflection of captain America and Mm -hmm. we don't really want him to be successful. And then Wyatt was able to really come in and, and bring this range of emotional character where Mm -hmm. they, you know, they were able to say, Hmm, well, okay. Maybe the character's deeper than we thought he was. Mm -hmm. Um, which if that's the case, that's actually really interesting to me how that might yeah. change their plans. Well, it, I, I think in, in many ways, you know, he's certainly one of the more interesting acting revelations that comes out of the mm-hmm. show. Um, yeah, absolutely. As much as I'm kind of ambivalent toward the character, I can't deny that he was not excellent in the role. Like he certainly, right. you know, made it a more nuanced portrayal than we certainly see in the comics for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit and I can always <laughs> edit this stuff in or kind of like work around or just kind of start from there and just say, hey, everybody. <laughs> uh, we kind of got the conversation going early. Uh, this is uh, the serious fun breakdown of Falcon and Winter Soldier, the latest in the ongoing, seemingly never-ending onslaught of Marvel Cinematic Universe streaming shows on the Disney Plus streaming platform, which we probably all own now because, you know, I believe legally we are well, mandated to. Um, <laughs> with me to discuss this show, once again, uh, my research assistant and our uh, com mass media student, uh, soon to graduate, Emily Fecto, back again. Hello, Emily. Hello, Dr. Carr. Looking forward to your thoughts on the show. Also joining us by popular demand, we actually had a student <laughs> specifically say, will you do another episode with Dr. Cliff Ganyard? And I said, okay. So here he is. Uh, we we talked you last we uh, last talked with him on Serious Fun about the sort of outward presence of World War II in kind of popular culture. And uh, we kind of hinted along the lines there. It's like, we got to do something about Captain America eventually. Here's a great opportunity. Uh, it's associate provost here at UW Green Bay, at least for a little while longer, and a member of our esteemed history faculty, of course, the esteemed Cliff Ganyard. How are you, sir? Uh, hello, everyone. I'm doing very well, Brian. Thank you for having me on the show again. I'm really well, excited about this. Yeah, and and hopefully, you know, my student is too. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I, I and I'm glad you're on because you know this. I think this show requires um, historical context and understanding both of the character and kind of the. Um, real world issues that they're poking at and maybe without giving uh, too much away, maybe kind of fumbling a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, this is definitely a show that's trying to be about something in a way that the Marvel universe um, doesn't always try to. Um, and so I guess we can have, we can start off there just kind of overall thoughts. Uh, you know, what did you all think? And I mean, whoever wants to go first is welcome to, I didn't really come with an order in mind, but, uh, um, go ahead. 
Sure. I'll jump in, Brian. So I, I like the show quite a bit. Um, I think they did some really nice things. Um, and like you say, the, it's clear that they're trying to do something, mm-hmm. um, which I like. And I like what they're trying to do. What I found a little bit, well, frustrating is not the right word, but I think they fall short on occasion mm-hmm. um, or they don't fully realize where they're going. Uh, and we can talk some more more about that. But I did really like the show. And some of that, I think, is, is well, I like the characters, obviously. I'm a big Captain America fan. Um, and I like Brubaker's run on the comic, which brought back uh, Winter Soldier and Bucky Barnes was really good. And while a lot of people will disagree with me, I actually like Nick Spencer's run on Sam Wilson as Captain America, too, mm-hmm. which is great source material um, for this. Um, so I like the characters a, a lot, too, but I, I like that they tried to make it relevant. Mm-hmm. And whether they completely succeeded on that or not, we can discuss a little bit further. But I, I like that they actually made that effort to do something along these lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Emily? I have to agree. Um, I did like the the series, um, the season, pretty pretty much. Um, I mean, I liked it all all in all, but I have to say that in the beginning of it, it kind of wasn't really holding my attention. Um, I wasn't quite sure the direction that they were going for until it was mid season, and then that's when it really started to kind of hold form for me. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there were some parts that kind of fell short or could have been better analyzed or better written. But um, at the same time, I know that there were complications while filming this series. So, but overall, I did like it a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think I'm kind of there with both of you. Um, you know, certainly I, I think it's one of those things that in the moment probably uh, felt better <laughs> than if I, after I've had some time to sit with it um, and, and reading some of the, you know, I've been really kind of following, especially the thoughts from uh, black voices and critics in particular, because this is a show that really aggressively tries to talk about, um, you know, the black experience in America. And, you know, we have, you know, this is like some tremendous insight. I want to really recommend, for instance, Charles Pulliam Moore work, uh, Charles Pulliam Moore's work over at IO9 um, and Richard L. Newby um, over at the Hollywood Reporter just done some fantastic work kind of on both sides of, you know, was this good or was this bad? Um, and so I want to encourage you to check out their work. I'm going to be referring to it throughout the show. I just, um, you know, and, and you know, uh, so. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I think, you know, for me, it, comparing it to its most direct antecedent, which is, of course, WandaVision, the show we we the last one we did, you know, uh, was uh, to me, WandaVision was it never really stuck with me as much. Right. Like I watched it kind of like, you know, and, and you know, I'm not going to relitigate everything we talked about in the last show, um, you know, but I, I, th- I thought it was OK. I didn't really love it. I'm not, I doubt I'm going to watch it again. Um, this one I thought hung together better for me in terms of just like, you know, um, getting to its point, whatever, you know, how now whether it actually did its point well is different. Um, but, you know, it kind of got to what it was trying to do and, you know, gave the kind of fun Marvel stuff I'm looking for, but also tried to kind of hit at these things. Um, but I think where it's successful more than anything, you know, we can talk about, you know, it's politics and that kind of thing and, and, and sort of where that might go awry. But I think where it's successful is really being a character study of these two guys. Right. We have the Falcon, you know, Sam Wilson, and we have, um, you know, the, the Winter Soldier, Bucky Barnes, and they're both at very different points in their life after going through some a lot of shared experience and trauma. Um, you know, they both have seen their best friend kind of just 
leave. Um, Captain America is now just an old man. He's not Captain America anymore. You know, handing down the legacy of what that means is is a really key thing for both of them. And, you know, they're both sort of grappling. And that's really, I, I think, one of the main themes of this show. And so maybe it's the next kind of point we can talk about is this idea of legacy. Sam's grappling with whether he should really take over this shield. We have Isaiah Bradley, um, I, I believe, uh, played by Carl Lumbly, who's just fantastic. Um, you know, he's a living reminder of the legacy of experimentation, exploitation of black bodies and black soldiers. Um, Bucky's trying to overcome his own legacy as the Winter Soldier, but it's also kind of trying to just, and at the same time, talking about this larger idea of legacy in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Uh, there's a there's a line in uh, WandaVision about the ship of Theseus. And like, you know, if we keep rebuilding the ship, is it still the ship anymore? And somebody pointed this out on Twitter, and I hadn't made that connection. Like, that's kind of the theme going forward is, you know, a lot of actors have left. A lot of characters have left. We're rebuilding this and kind of going in a new direction. So I, with all that in mind, kind of like, you know, and certainly, Cliff, you are, an, you are uh, I would say, an authority on kind of the legacy of Captain America in general. Um, how do you think it handled these issues? Like, what, do you, what did you take away from it? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. And, and I agree, you know, um, the MCU is being rebuilt as we watch it. Um, mm-hmm. And there have been a couple of hints now, especially with WandaVision and, and Falcon and Winter Soldier, you know, are they gearing up for a kind of West Coast Avengers um, between the White Vision and U.S. Agent and uh, with Jer- Jeremy Renner, you know, reprising Hawkeye maybe, um, which would be a very different Avengers, uh, I think, than what we've seen in the past. And, and of course, one thing that uh, has also been pointed out uh, I think is that Eli Bradley, Isaiah Bradley's grandson, shows up in this series, and in the the Marvel comics, Eli Bradley goes on to become Patriot, mm-hmm. um, you know, a kind of younger version of Captain America. And interestingly, uh, in Young Avengers, the chief villain of the first several issues is Kang, uh, the Conqueror, who has already been advertised. Is or the character the actor has already been hired? I think to play in another uh, MCU movie. So, you know, there's a couple of interesting directions, I think, that Marvel and Disney could rebuild the, the franchise, uh, as it were. Um, but to get back to your, your uh, more direct question, uh, I would kind of divide it into two. And so one is the kind of legacy of the characters, just looking at them within um, the material themselves. Uh, so you say, you know, like Bucky and trying to come to terms with who he was, Uh, in a couple of ways, right? So Bucky, the soldier in World War II, um, uh, well, James Barnes, the soldier, Bucky Barnes as the, you know, the sidekick to Captain America, as it were, then the Winter Soldier, now not the Winter Soldier, the White Wolf or whatever we want to, you know, he's actually had a lot of identities. Mm -hmm. And we could imagine there being a lot of identity crisis and watching him try to to work through that, I think, is really interesting. Sam's Sam's legacy is a little bit different. Uh, you know, he comes from he comes to Captain America, he comes to Steve Rogers um, from a very different set of experiences, I, I think. But I agree, that's really what's appealing to me as well is watching these two characters grow um, over the course of the six episodes uh, and grow together. Right. So at the beginning of the series, they don't necessarily like each other. Uh, there's a kind of mutual respect, uh, I think. But there's a scene, I can't remember which episode it is, where they're talking about what binds them together. And Bucky says something like, we're two guys who have a common friend. Uh, and Sam says, well, the friend is gone. So we're just two guys, mm-hmm. you know, and it kind of brings it down. But by the end of the season, 
right? That that relationship has really changed. Mm-hmm. So in the final scenes of episode six, where we see uh, Sam and his sister and their family celebrating around uh, their parents' boat and having a big cookout with the community, here comes Bucky in his shades with his cake, you know, dancing through, you know, really a part of the family now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting, I think, to see those two characters grow together. Um, the other way I would look at it, and maybe we'll leave this for a little bit later in the show, um, is to think about the historical legacy. Um, and so thinking about how actual history kind of impinges on the comics, on the show, and what and what the MCU is trying to say about that history, which is a little bit different, I think. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, and, you know, here we have a situation, and, and I think one thing that's interesting is there's a comment, I, I can't remember what episode it's in, but I know there's a comment where Bucky makes the statement like, you know, when we gave you that shield, it, it wasn't really, mm-hmm. you know, a we, that was kind of, I, I guess that he and, and Steve had a conversation about it, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, we hadn't really thought about what it would mean for a black man to carry exactly. that shield, right? And that's something that, you know, in the comics, that was also, they kind of, we, we, had, we kind of went through a similar thing as well. Um, uh, Emily, what are your thoughts on this? Well, kind of around on that whole topic of the shield, that interaction when they when Bucky and Sam come together, like you know, start to work together, um, you could kind of feel a little bit of re- resentment from Bucky towards him, being like, "That wasn't yours to give away." Essentially, and to me, I saw that as someone who's kind of holding on to the past and not necessarily having someone to come home to like a family and then when you see them all around the boat and kind of seeing that he's getting that kind of level of a relationship with other people that a sense of belonging i thought that was an interesting side to see someone of a more relaxed and a little bit more mellowed out kind of character progression and i really enjoyed that and and certainly that was kind of who he was before, you know, he fell into the ice and was brainwashed to be a, a, a you know, Hydra death agent, um, you know, and, and that's kind of nice to kind of see him coming back to that. And uh, I, I love the uh, the implication of the running gag that he's basically hitting on Sam's sister. And my hope is that, you know, we take this to its logical conclusion. We do another series. We call it Uncle Buck. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that's what I contribute. That's that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Um, and one of the other things I thought was kind of interesting, and so um, I want to get into kind of the, you know, I think it's without question that, you know, at, at the character level, you know, the Mackie and Stan, and they make this work. This is a, if you like these characters, or even if you weren't really sure about them, I certainly have a greater appreciation for these two characters after this series than I did going in. Um, you know, we'll talk about why that is in a little bit. But, you know, as much as that works, there's also a, a plot that has to happen, right? There's a story, and one of the things, you know, it's and, and the story maybe gets a little bit messy because it's trying to do a lot of things at once. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a very politically-minded show. It's looking at, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the, the idea, the repercussions of the undoing of the Snap and Infinity War um, and how, you know, how refugee situations might happen or how, like, you know, how do we apportion land and property and that kind of thing. Um, you know, what do we, uh, like, how do we handle these sort of things? And, and, and like also this question of the flag smashers, right? Um, you know, the flag smashers uh, to me, uh, and, and you can stay, either, you can jump in and tell me if I'm wrong here. I felt like I, I've watched that show and I've even gone back and rewatched um, several episodes. I still don't have a super clear idea of what exactly the flag smashers want at the end of this. 
And, and I think it's okay to maybe like leave some stuff up to the imagination, but not so much when it comes to like motivation for why your antagonist is doing what they're doing. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, we can talk about this in a lot of different ways, but this is a show that's really trying to get at that, um, you know, trying to have something to say. And does it do it? Yeah, it's a good question, Brian. I, I agree with you about the, the kind of uh, ambiguity around the Flag Smashers. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of like them. They, they're really changed from the source material, right? Mm-hmm. So Mark Grunewald uh, created the character Flag Smasher, and he was a typical costume supervillain at the time. Uh, and uh, Carl Morgan, um, Morgenthau? What's his anyway. Carly Morgenthau. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Carl so Morgenthau. Carl Morgenthau is the original, and Carly Morgenthau. But Carly is a very different character. Mm-hmm in the show than the original source material, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, in the original source material, Flag Smasher is, uh, he's actually the son of a wealthy Swiss banker uh, who's become a diplomat uh, and who promoted peace. Uh, and he just doesn't like the idea of nations. He thinks that nations separate people uh, and he's really promoting this higher sense of humanity and togetherness, but he's chosen to do, through, do so through violence right? Terrorism. Uh, and there's a scene in one of the first issues that he appears in where Steve Rogers flat out tells Flag Smasher, says, look, if you'd done this peacefully, if you'd marched and paraded and so forth, I'd be on your side. But you've chosen violence as a means, and therefore I have to oppose you, right? So there, there's that element too. And, and I kind of wonder, you, you know, uh, Carly Morgenthau's mantra is the same, right? One world, one people. Let's get rid of borders. Let's have the free flow. But there's this implied higher um, uh, ambition about humanity, that we're all the same, that we're all one people, and that nations maybe get in the way of that, um, which is appealing on, uh, on many levels. And I think it's interesting, too, that the Flag Smashers are a highly diverse group of people, um, which kind of speaks to that too, I think. But like the original Flag Smasher, in, instead of choosing to to try and promote these ideals peacefully, I'm reminded for some reason of Greta Thunberg suddenly. Um, you know, they've chosen violence and terrorism. Uh, and it, it's, it's an interesting kind of reflection of the original, but we don't get much more than that. I don't think there's some there's some reference to the blip to the snap Mm -hmm. five years. And we get the sense that some of these uh, people, some of the flag smashers maybe returned after the blip or were otherwise affected or maybe are just activists who are trying to support those who came back after the blip. But there's not much more than that. Um, There's a set of scenes in Riga where they visit the, the home where some of the well, Sam calls them refugees, and the one guy pointedly says, we're not refugees, we're displaced persons, mm-hmm. which I think is actually a wonderful use of that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we don't get much more than what of what they're after here. I actually think this is one of the places where the, the show falls short mm-hmm. um, in some ways. Emily. I have to agree with that as well. Um, 
I think from an editing standpoint, too, I thought it was interesting. And I know that we discussed, um, Dr. Carr, about how since they were filming like abroad in different places and then with the travel ban situation that there weren't a lot of time to continue on with certain points. So I thought it was interesting when um, he's there with his phone kind of like tracking, but at the same time, it's like, well, what are you really tracking? Cause for someone who doesn't know the full, like, you know, the Marvel universe, like from the way back, it would be a little bit not to have everything spelt out for you, but a little bit more context. And I think that was my biggest confusion with it, but I would have liked to see more of that mm -hmm. explained, but I, for what they were able to bring to the series, I thought was really interesting. And I also think that it's interesting that it's Carly opposed to Carl. So that's, mm -hmm. that's, I like that. Yeah. And you know, it's certainly interesting that here we have uh, an actress and her, her name is Casey, but she's also Emphis Nest in the solo movie um, and playing kind of a similar sort of freedom fighter type character in both of these, you know, we kind of see like the spark of the uh, uh, rebellion in, in solo through her. And now we're seeing kind of a different version that played for more of an antagonistic approach. Um, and, and, you know, in our conversation, you know, uh, prior to this, you know, you, you sent me, uh, I, I should point out just kind of a peek behind the curtain. Cliff sent me an email. I don't know how many hundreds of words this is, um, but it's a, it's a pretty <laughs> thorough breakdown of his thoughts on the show. And it's just all gold. I wish I could just like have it just read it to you. Um, but one of the things he brought up that I thought was kind of interesting is, you know, going back to this character of Isaiah Bradley. Um, and, you know, looking at and how he kind of touches on a lot of different historical threads in the comics. You know, um, you know, if you're not familiar, if you've only seen the show, Isaiah Bradley is a character that comes from uh, a particular series called Captain America, the truth, red, white and black. Um, and, I'm, and I forget offhand. Do you remember offhand who does that one? Um, I, I can't remember the artist and writer behind it. I can, I uh, Morales, I think. I think it, the author was Morales. I can't I've I've just gone blank on it as well, Brian. I apologize. Yeah. And it's a great series, and I feel terrible because Robert Morales is the writer, Kyle Baker's the artist. Yeah. Um. And weirdly enough, Marvel has not put this story back into print, despite the fact Isaiah Bradley's a major part. Now you can get it digitally, and I encourage you to do that. Um. But you know, this is a Marvel Max story. It's a bit more adult. I mean, it's pulling at things that are really not something that I think Disney really wants um, to have like associate with Marvel in a lot of ways. Um, but it's weird that they haven't brought this back, considering how important he is to this story. But in the original story, you know, Isaiah Bradley is one of the first uh, test subjects for the Super Soldier Serum before um, Steve Rogers ever gets it. Um, and this is a clear allegory, of course, to the Tuskegee experiment, um, which is, you know, one of the great kind of medical atrocities that has been committed in American history. Um you know, and uh, it, it kind of wrecks his life in a way that it didn't for Steve Rogers and, you know, sort of demonstrating the very different outcomes. Um, and, and a way that they kind of did this cleverly, I thought, in the show was they have Bradley talk about how, you know, he they, they move him up to the Korean War because the timeline works better, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they talk about how he went behind enemy lines, got his soldiers out, brought them back and he was court-martialed and thrown in jail. And as people have pointed out, that's literally what Captain America does in the first Avenger. It's the same thing, but Steve Rogers is lauded. He gets to keep his rank. He's a hero. And uh, Isaiah Bradley is basically thrown in jail and, and branded a criminal. Um, and, of course, the implication now becomes the fact that where do they get all the rest of the super soldier serum? Because we know that the original batch that was given to Steve Rogers was destroyed. 
um, uh, when when uh, you know when Hydra attacked, they probably were doing experiments on him for years and using that to recreate the formula. You know, Hydra was probably getting you know because we know Hydra was very highly involved in the government. Um, but it also puts Tony Stark's dad in kind of a negative light. Um, and that's something I don't know was intentional, but if you came away from this thinking Howard Stark is still a pretty all right guy, I don't know what to tell you. Um, this really, I think one of the interesting things is that this does kind of recast a lot of our understandings of these characters, um, while also, you know, and, and like who we see as truly good and who we see as maybe morally ambiguous, while also trying to touch on these real world historical events. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and for me, when I when I saw Isaiah Bradley show up in episode two, that that's what really convinced me that this was a potentially a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're right. I, I absolutely love uh, Truth, Red, White, and Black uh, for exactly what you did, what you said. Um, you know, it really does. I mean, that that series actually rewrote the history of Captain America in really significant ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally, like you said, it was in Marvel Max. So, you know, there was the thinking of, well, this could be just kind of a, you know, a what if kind of yeah. show. Or I guess technically it wasn't Marvel Max. I should clarify because I'm looking at it now and it wasn't. But still, it was very much a separate universe kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But they've brought it into continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, in the comics and now in in this show and and I think that's that's really great um, you know and I think you're absolutely right I mean they say pretty flat out that they use Bradley's blood to reconstruct the, the super soldier serum and mm-hmm. that this is what Carly has now that she's using to um, create her own uh, super army as it were um, and some other there's some other interesting things we can can delve into there Um but this is what really interests me about this. And this is the other part of legacy, I think, is that these characters are rooted in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Steve, Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes, of course, are soldiers in World War II. And Marvel, Stan Lee, and so forth have kind of fudged the science fiction to make them still be alive now. Uh, and that's fine. I'm a science fiction fan, so that, that works for me. But there is this legacy of World War II, I think, that um, that Marvel is kind of playing with here um, and doing a pretty good job of it, I think. I mentioned that that phrase earlier of displaced persons that the one a survivor of the blip insists on. Well, this is exactly what people after World War II were described as, those who had been displaced from their homes either because of war or more sinisterly, um, because of the Holocaust and other activities. They were called DPs, displaced persons. So it's actually a really nice little phrase to make that connection if, if you know that, that piece of information. But now we have this great continuity. And you're right, they have to move Isaiah Bradley up to a slightly different time period, or he'd be too old to actually be in the show, I think. Mm-hmm. But in the original stories, right, Isaiah Bradley is in the Army right at the beginning of world war ii he's before steve rogers to make they test it on a black man to make sure it's not gonna go berserk and kill somebody um or whatever it would do right create mutations or if i recall whatever. correctly he's one of the only ones that survives it's Most right yeah everyone else i think dies in it um so i mean there's that whole that whole idea of using african-americans for nefarious purposes, uh, I think. Uh, that's really interesting uh, Interesting to me. Uh, and I think they, they do a pretty good job of kind of, they're kind of subtle here, 
mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. Bradley's character does is not in the show very much, mm-hmm. um, but there but there is a little bit where he is in, and it, it does create this nice connection um, to those earlier earlier parts. I think well, one of the things I thought was interesting is that I that Bradley actually mentions the Red Tails when Sam first meets him. And the Red Tails is uh, the call name of the Tuskegee Airmen, which is a group of all African-American pilots in World War II. Um, But there's the darker side of the Tuskegee, which is the Tuskegee syphilis study, Mm -hmm. where they deliberately infected a number of African-American men with syphilis, didn't tell them about it, and then followed their progress, followed the disease of progress for 40 years, right, from 1932 until 1972, um, and the ethics behind this, of course, are completely corrupt, um, but it really kind of t- speaks to the way that African-Americans were viewed and treated um, uh, and just incredibly abused in many ways. Um, and so I, I think it's, a, it's really, for me at least, I mean, like you said earlier, there's more to the story, right? There's a plot that we have to tell. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, this moment for me is really the core of, of what's going on in the show. And something else you brought up, and Emily, I want to bring you in on here because I know you're a big fan of, of Watchmen, is that uh, mm-hmm. you know this is a show where we're living in a time period where science fiction and genre entertainment is really starting to delve into... Um, you know, the the really dark history of racism in America and systemic racism in general. Um, and, you know, we have an instance where both you mentioned both Watchmen and Lovecraft Country make explicit reference to the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, which we are only and, and, and it blew my mind, um, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be honest, like this is something that, you know, most people don't learn about in high school, myself included. Um, but, you know, I, I was aware of it as I kind of learned more and I, you know, I, I took African-American history classes and stuff like that in college. Um, and, you know, but so many people learned that this was a thing because of Watchmen, that first mm-hmm. episode of Watchmen. Um, and, you know, I, it's and, and if your first blush is like, that's awful. But also, yeah, that's because it was, you know, the powers that be <laughs> that are making education curriculum in this country have done their damnedest to hide it. Um, you know, it's something that unless you kind of went looking for it, you wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. And so, you know, we also have, you know, Lovecraft Country arguably doing a less effective job, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, you know, Lovecraft Country is a show for me that starts really strong, does not end very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like, so I, I guess and, and maybe, Emily, if you have some thoughts on kind of comparing this to Watchmen in that regard, do you think like that one show maybe did this a bit more effectively in your mind or what are your thoughts? Well, I do think that it did do that very effectively, too. And kind of looking at Watchmen, too, just I agree that not a lot of people really knew that it was a real thing. I I watched it with my parents, that that series. And um, I think in their sense, like of watching it, they kind of thought it was a fictionalized thing because of it was a fictional show. You know, in a sense, it's oh, it's a superhero or whatever kind of idea. And I'm like, no, like, this is a real thing. And, you know, a lot of people are going to maybe see it in that view of being like, oh, they wrote this into a script. And where can you like kind of delve into reality or pick away from that? But I think that a lot of educational facets are kind of tied into both series. And I think that that should be a learning experience. But also those may not realize what's real and what's fictionalized. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you, Emily. I, Watchmen in particular, I think, was effective in this uh, in really grounding. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of what happens in that show is rooted in Tulsa 1921, right? And you kind of over the course of the show, you kind of see how that event shaped the rest of the universe. Uh, and I think it's brilliantly done because it 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 it, it rewrites Alan Moore's story significantly, but does so really intelligently. Um, N.K. Jemison, the, the the science fiction and fantasy writer, tweeted shortly after Watchmen came out. I can't remember exactly the quote, but she said something like, uh, "Historians and educators have been trying to make people aware of Tulsa in 1921 for literally decades, and now finally there's a monument or a memorial to this event thanks to a comic graphic novel, science fiction comic graphic novel. Mm -hmm. uh, and she concluded by saying, never say that narrative can't change history. Yeah. Uh, it's a really great comment that, it, I, you know, I think it really did make people more aware of that event in particular. But then it also makes you think about, wait a minute, what, how have we been treating African-Americans for, for decades or centuries? Mm -hmm. As you said earlier, Brian, I think, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a conspiracy necessarily, but right, and that's that was my have, intent. But yeah, no, I get it. There's a concerted um, effort to to downplay it at least. Yeah, or at least there's a there's a level of ignorance. Yeah, right. That uh, people are not aware of of some of this history, which is really important now, mm -hmm. as we're you know as we're looking at Black Lives Matter and some of these other um, contemporary movements. Yeah. And I want to talk about that uh, in particular. Um, quick, uh, first, quick shout out. Uh, you mentioned N.K. Jemisin. Um, if you are a comics fan, uh, her Far Sector series is excellent. Um, she's doing some really cool stuff with Green Lantern Mythos, um, and so I think it's getting pretty close to wrapping up. But uh, definitely check that out. Um, but uh, you know, you, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, and that was a thing. So I, I rewatched the first and last episode of this show to get prepared for this broadcast um, or podcast. Because we're not broadcasting. What am I saying? Um, and uh, what struck me is so one of the things that's gotten a lot of criticism, I think rightly so, is the sacrifice of uh, John Walker's friend Lamar Battlestar um, to essentially further his story. Um, they basically fight one of the Flag Smashers. One of the Flag Smashers kind of doesn't pull a punch and, you know, kills him. And there's a point, and this is, of course, the thing that incites Walker to murder one of the Flag Smashers in cold blood in broad daylight with captain america's shield which is one of the more kind of haunting images of the series and why i think his rehabilitation campaign at the end of the series doesn't really work mm -hmm. for me but going back to the main point when he's uh when he comes back after he's been stripped of his rank the shield's been taken away from him he's no longer captain america he builds his own shield comes back and he wants revenge on the flag smashers and he confronts carly saying you know like did lamar's life matter and i'm like I'm, I'm cringing a little bit in my seat because i'm like they're this is something where you're, you're playing with kind of a loaded gun and I'm not entirely sure you know what to do with it. Right. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that the writers put enough thought to invoke, um, you know, this particular issue at this particular moment in time. Now, again, this show was produced probably back. I think it's most of it was filmed like in 2019. Um, you know, and I believe this episode came out the same week we had the Derek Chauvin, uh, verdict handed down. Right. And to have a show kind of come back to the well of black trauma, loss of black life to further a white character. Um, and then to specifically have, you know, a character who you can make an argument is coded white supremacy, invoke the idea of black lives matter. 
I can see why people did not enjoy the, the last mm-hmm. episode. I, I saw a lot of um, folks just have kind of a, a bad taste in their mouth as a result of this. And so um, I, I don't know. If that's just kind of I'm talking out loud here. I don't really have a question. It's just something that, <laughs> uh, that, that kind of stuck in my mind the second time I watched it. Yeah, so I agree with you completely, Brian. The, 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 those two scenes are so the. the I mean, on the one hand, right, the revenge scene, that the killing of the flag smasher with Captain America's shield, that that feels like an important moment, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in Walker's descent. I mean, I think it has to happen. It's, the, it's starting from the beginning of the show. You know, nobody likes John Walker, nor should they really. He's a usurper. He's an imposter, as we've as we've said earlier. You know, and it's interesting go, thinking back on the kind of public reaction to the show as it rolled out. There were a lot of comments on social media. I admit I wasn't following the the actual criticism, but you know, comments to the effect that I don't like this Captain America. Who is John Walker? Right, and perhaps not quite seeing where the character was going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, you know, but when you start to see the whole arc, at least up until that scene, up until that episode, it makes perfect sense, yeah. right? John Walker is continually struggling to, to live up to the mantle, the legacy of Captain America. He's clearly not entirely suited for it. He comes to the, to the, to the, the shield from a different place than Steve Rogers does. Um, he ends up taking the super soldier serum himself to, you know, I think out of a sense to be able to compete with um, villains in his mind, villains and so forth. It's implied that the serum changes his mental stability, I think, a little bit, which is a little bit of an out. Um, they but, say something you know, to the effect of it just makes you more of who you were. Yeah, so you exactly. Find what was already there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is telling, right? Because then you look at Steve Rogers and you say, okay, I get it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it divides those two characters even more. So that scene where he, he kills somebody feels like it has to happen. And in the comic books, in fact, John Walker does end up killing a couple of his former partners. They're called Bucky's in the original uh, series, Bold Urban Commandos. It's the 1980s, whatever. Um, you know, so he, he goes through a kind of similar arc I think, um, before he's rehabilitated too. But there's a lot of problems, I agree, around Lamar. Um, and there was in the original series too, in the, in the, in the source material. Um, but Hoskins, Lamar doesn't get enough screen time. He doesn't get the due I think he deserves, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest. I was a little bit surprised when, they, when his character was killed uh, in that episode. Uh, and I thought it was actually underdone I mean, he's kicked into a pillar and then kind of expires. It's, mm-hmm. it's, he deserves better than that. Um, but it's problematic that, you know, the killing of a black man leads to this reciprocal murder. And then I agree that at the end, the, the line, are you saying that Lamar's death didn't mean anything? It com- it falls completely flat. It yeah. do- it does just doesn't work. And rhetorically specifically saying that you're saying his life didn't matter. I'm like, Oh, come on. Like, yeah. It's just like, don't don't do that. Just don't. Like, it's, yeah. um, and I want to come back to this idea, and uh, you know, and Emily, maybe you have some thoughts on this. Um, we we kind of talked about the idea of these characters sort of being mirrors of each other in a lot of ways, right? So you know, we have Steve Rogers. He's that kid. You know, like you know, there's that line in the first Avenger where it's you know Erskine talks about how you know I wanted like a what's the line? It's like you know I wanted a, a man who knew what it was like to not have power or 
um you know like uh it, it to like it, a weak man giving that weak man power is is it's different than giving a strong man power right um you know steve rogers being this guy who would have you know he was a heroic kind man even without the serum um you know he becomes this sort of idealized figure right and we and you know you see kind of like in the fandom and just in in universe people rally around him and kind of respect him on this level because he is the sort of ideal. Like he's almost this figure that's larger than just being a human being. He's sort of the embodiment of the American belief, the American spirit and experiment. Right. Um, And then you have Walker who in a lot of ways is, you know, the kind of corporatized sort of, you know, the military industrial complex version of that. Right. He's what the government originally wanted to do with captain America, but Steve Rogers was Steve Rogers. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, he in many ways, you see him as a bit twitchier, more violent, more, you know, just kind of unflinchingly accepting orders and that kind of thing. Um, and then we have Sam, who ultimately takes up the mantle by the end of it. And, you know, one of the critiques I've seen that's kind of interesting and something that I certainly pulled from this um, is this idea that these three kind of act as sort of mirrors of each other. All right. You know, like we have Captain America as this sort of ideal of America, right? Like who we think we are, who we want to be. Um, or what we think America could be or is, um, or like how we like to see ourselves. Um, and we have John Walker as sort of the cruel reality of what America is, um, you know, uh, just sort of this idea of like unchecked sort of hegemonic power. And then you have Sam Wilson, a guy who very much understands what it's like to not be, you know, in, in those positions of authority. He very much understands the, you know, what it's like to be a black man, to be um, sort of downtrodden and, and kind of, you know, held to a different standards and accounts, um, but also representative of what we could be, right? If we gave that symbol and that power and authority to somebody who truly understands what it's like to be one of those, uh, those under, uh, under, uh, underclass or the downtrodden, um, you know, and that sort of trifecta is really, really interesting. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, we'll start with Emily. Did you have any thoughts about, you know, thematically um, the relationship between these characters? Well, I, I think, what, well, the way that you said that was actually really interesting because you made me think back to the kind of museum part that mm-hmm. that scene where there's like the Captain America, like, oh, we want y- you to go to the draft or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like seeing that he was really a figure that wanted to protect the country, wanted to like show how great America was and or is. <laughs> and But um, I thought it was an interesting point that you made with um the serum kind of shows a little bit more more of enhances who you already are and for captain america to be this great guy who really is like overall like an amazing human being or superhero and then there's walker who to me kind of came across like as a like kind of having a hissy fit half the time throughout the series kind of like oh i'm not good enough but i'm gonna overcompensate Mm -hmm. and i didn't really like that theme to it too because growing up captain america was actually one of my favorite superheroes i have a um my old um, backpack was all like marvel on it had captain america on it and so i i just kind of was like oh this is a really big letdown but then you know you have the other characters too just everyone was just better than captain america in this and i was like this is really upsetting but at the same time kind of had to happen because it's reflecting different parts of what's going on in our country now and i did i found that to be quite interesting yeah i agree brian 
you know, the, the, the John Walker, Steve Rogers dichotomy, reflection, mirror, whatever, you know, works well. And um, Mark Grunewald, when he created uh, John Walker, did so intentionally. He said at one point, I wanted to be the exact opposite of Steve Rogers. So Steve Rogers is, you know, a poor, urban, uh, downtrodden guy from the north. So I made uh, John Walker be a wealthy, rural guy from the south. Um, and so there's some intention there that they they kind of be mirror reflections of of one another. And I think there's a lot to be said, too, uh, for that idea that Steve Rogers, as Emily was saying, you know, represents the ideal, the hope mm-hmm. uh, of what America is. And, and Walker is, as you said, you know, kind of the grim reality, maybe, uh, of how America operates. You know, Walker is the CIA in Central America assassinating people um, for better or worse. And, um, you know, Rogers is maybe naive, but he, hold, he upholds those those I- ideals very well. But in a lot of ways, you know, Sam is the more interesting Captain America to me. Um, and his journey, as we've kind of outlined already, is 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 really important, I think. Um, you know, the hesitancy, as Emily said at the beginning of the show, the decision not to take up the shield, even though Steve has chosen him, handpicked him, you know, to give it back to the United States. By the way, there's an interesting comment by Contessa Defontaine, um, who says, you know, the shield doesn't belong to the government. Um, maybe we can talk about that later. Oh, I, I, have, uh, I have a thought on that. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that's really important. And and then as Emily mentioned a, a little bit earlier ago, or maybe it was you, Brian, I, I, I forget, mm-hmm. you know, that scene in, when Sam and Bucky are throwing the shield around and talking and Bucky, you know, kind of says, we didn't realize what it would mean to give the shield to an African-American or to you, mm-hmm. I think is really telling. Again, that kind of blindness to the African-American experience um, but also the realization of, of what it would mean. Uh, but by the end of the show, right, Sam has this great speech at the end of, of the series when he's talking to the GRC and he says, look, I'm not Steve Rogers. I'm not John Walker. I'm just a guy. Mm-hmm. I don't have any superpowers. All I, all, I'm just a guy who believes we can do better, mm-hmm. right? Is, I think that's a really important um, element um, it really harkens back. It, I mean, it also links him to Steve, right? Because Steve is the guy who thinks we can always do better, right? Uh, the great tagline for Steve Rogers for me is I can do this all day, mm-hmm. right? From the very first film where he's, he's standing up, he's fighting the bully, you know, he keeps getting up and says, I can do this all day. And it's a phrase throughout there. In fact, Sam says something, I think when he's fighting Batrock, uh, in the last season, he says some, he doesn't say I can do this all day, but basically he says, I'm never going to give up, mm-hmm. which is kind of the same thing. Um, but that scene is really important. It, it kind of defines a new Captain America, not a super soldier, you know, uh, somebody who believes in doing better, an African American, of course, which is really important. Um, and then something we haven't t- touched on yet, but maybe we should, is that Sam is also a counselor. Right. And that his background is is one of de-escalation mm-hmm. um, rather than escalation and, and trying to avoid confrontation rather than confronting, mm-hmm. which I have to say, both Steve Rogers and John Walker, that's what they do. Right. They charge into the burning building. They throw their shield at the bad guy. And while Sam is quite capable of doing both of those things, his first instinct is 
to, to want to talk to Carly Morgenthau and try to figure out what she wants. Um, and significantly, I think John Walker gets impatient, as Emily was just saying, right? Rushes in before the time is up and arguably screws up the whole thing. I mean, he has to, otherwise the series would end at episode three. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's a really interesting depiction, different depiction of what Captain America and what America could be, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, that idea uh, and, and this is one of the things like when I talk about having a greater appreciation for Sam and Bucky, we haven't talked a lot about Bucky, but I want to I'll, I'll touch on him in a minute. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have a greater appreciation for these characters because we have to spend more time with them and really kind of call back and harken back to, you know, I mean, in the original comics, Sam was a social worker like that was his thing. He wasn't a soldier or anything. That was something that was a complete invention for the movies, which one of the criticisms of the Marvel Universe in general is it's kind of there's a lot of militarism in it. Um, you know, instead of just being, you know, I'm a social worker I'm from in, from the inner city and Captain America's, you know, he, he becomes Captain America's friend and ally, not because he's got military training, but because he has the heart and determination and, right. and the kindness. Um, and so getting that and, and Mackie just absolutely selling the hell out of it and being that, you know, believing that this is a guy who to his core wants to do better and believes people can do better. But, you know, is very recognized, very much recognizes the fact that this is not a perfect country. This is not a perfect situation. Um, you know, it's. In a, in, a, in a universe where so many people are trying to essentially see Carly as a threat, he's the first one and only one to try to see her as a human first. And that right. comes through in his final speech. And I have a theory that when you finally take on the mantle of Captain America and you hold that shield, you become really good at giving speeches. Like that's, you know, like <laughs> that becomes like one of your superpowers. Um, it's like, and, you know, and he did it without the super soldier serum. So, like, again, you know, could we argue best Captain America? We absolutely could. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to get to, because you mentioned, and, and we haven't mentioned one of my favorite parts. I'm just going to go real quick on this. Is um, this series did something that I thought we would never see, and that's remember that Ao from Civil War exists. Um, so Ao or Io, I'm not 100 sure on how you say her name offhand. Um, she was one of the Dormilaje. She's the first one we see, in fact, mm -hmm. um, when T'Challa shows up in Civil War. And she was not in the Black Panther movie or Infinity War or anything else. So I'm just like, huh, was there a falling out? Did they just not want to use her anymore? She's back. And so when she showed up at the end of, what was it, episode three? I was like, and I'm, <laughs> because I'm going to, you know, full disclosure, I'm writing a book about Black Panther. I'm absolutely biased toward anything Wakandan at this point. So, <laughs> um, you know, when you mentioned it doesn't really belong to America, I'm like, no, it belongs to Wakanda. And in fact, I'm reasonably confident um, that Howard Stark probably worked with somebody not Cloud, the time wouldn't line up, but um, worked with somebody like Ulysses Cloud to get Vibranium out of Wakanda. I don't think that was necessarily a gift given. Now, in the comics, you know, they have now retconned it that Captain America gets his shield as a gift from not T'Challa, but I believe his dad or grandfather mm -hmm. um, during World War II. But they didn't really do that in this. Um, but, uh, you know, and so it, I, I very much I love the part where the Dormelage are fighting John Walker and just kicking the ever loving out of him. It's it tickled me on a very deep level because I'm a big fan of the Dormelage in general. Um, but, uh, you know, the one just like kicks the shield up on her arm and she's about to walk out the door with it. Mm -hmm. And A.L.'s like, no, nah, just leave it because they, they, they know that's not the mission. It's going to start an international incident. But, you know, they have a claim to the shield. Technically, it's Wakandan, mm -hmm. you know, material. Um, 
but uh and i also love the bit where she just like disables bucky's arm and people were like mm. there's like a guy going around saying he's really thought that it was like a violation of bucky's autonomy and all that i'm like and like just mistrust and all that it's like i don't think because there's that really nice scene where it's flashing back to when bucky's in wakanda and ao's working with them to demonstrate that the programming has been has been dissolved and he's his own person again mm-hmm. it's a really nice moment between those two and yeah it's meant to kind of sting a little bit when she just undoes the arm but also Think about it from sort of the logical standpoint. If you're Wakanda, mm-hmm. a very closed off nation, a xenophobic nation, let's be honest, um, that has very good reason not to trust the outside world because, you know, history, um, you know, and they you give a highly advanced vibranium arm prosthetic to a guy who was, you know, a, a Hydra soldier for a long time. You might have a thing in there, just like a quick sequence, just like, OK, if I ever have to fight this guy, I'm just going to take his mm-hmm. arm off. That's just logic. That's just, you just do that. It's nothing personal. It's just how Wakandans operate. Um, but I also love, just real quick, the fact that they did the homage to the fact that Black Panther actually built uh, uh, Sam's wings in the comics by having the Wakandans build um, his suit. And I was kind of hoping we might get like a quick little glimpse of Chadwick Boseman, like maybe he'd recorded some kind of brief cameo or something. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And, you know, obviously we won't be able to see him again. But um, in a way, it was kind of a nice sort of nod to the fact that there is a history between these characters, both in this universe, but also in the comics in general. Um but yeah, so that was when you, when you mentioned that uh, you know, like uh, the the idea that the shield might actually be U.S. property. That was the first thing I thought of when she said that. I'm like, yeah, kind of isn't. <laughs> like, it's not. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Brian. And <clears throat> there's a there's again another nod here to to history, right? That uh, the the shield, the vibranium that the shield is made out of, it's kind of implied was was taken from Wakanda, mm-hmm. right? So there's a hint at the kind of colonial history of Europeans and Americans, you know, exploiting Africa. Um, is very subtle, I have to admit, but it's there. And I think it's brought up in some of the comics uh, as well. But like you, I absolutely love that scene. I would point out that um, they not they not only beat up John Walker, but they beat up John Walker, Bucky Barnes, and Sam Wilson. Yeah. Uh, all in the same all in the same scene without much really effort. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's pretty impressive, uh, impressive moment. I also have to say, we, we haven't talked about Baron Zemo yet, too. And I kind of feel like we'll probably run out of time before we get to Zemo. But we have, we have uh, I, I, I do love Daniel Bruhl in that scene, just standing back. You know, I think he's eating some candies, uh, some uh, Turkish delights, I think they are, actually. Uh, and then just kind of, you know, walking out of the room into the bathroom and then running away. It's mm-hmm. perfectly played, I think, to let, you know, okay, I'm just going to let all the big super guys fight each other, ignore me, and I'm going to get away this way. Fantastic. And he doesn't ultimately, of course. No. Um, but, you know, talking about legacy, there's another legacy that we could we could work through a little well, bit. Let's talk about him real quick because this has okay. been, you know, I, I, we got some time. Um, let's talk about him for a minute. Um, this is something that uh, he has become sort of the Internet's favorite character in a lot of ways. Um, the meme of him dancing, you know, they did like mm-hmm. a 10 minute cut of just that scene of him dancing in the nightclub. And, you know, it's, but it's interesting because, so this character, you know, in the comics, he's very much like an aristocrat, like trained mm-hmm. soldier, assassin, whatever. Like he's, you know, he's not terribly dissimilar from the role that he ultimately plays in the show, but in the, in the film, uh, civil war, he's really just like, he's, he's a Sokovian security, like a, uh, uh, intelligence agent, right? Like he's not, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's not a super tactical genius. He doesn't have a ton of resources or anything like that. Um, you know, he's just the whole point is that it's just some guy was able to destroy the Avengers from the inside. Right. And that's mm-hmm. what makes him a really interesting antagonist in this show. They're just like, well, he's also Batman. 
And so now, you know, they bring in the comics thing where he really has the Baron title because he comes from wealth. He's got resources. And, you know, a lot of the time he's a villain, but sometimes he's kind of an anti-hero protagonist character, too. And I definitely got that in here. So I guess, Emily, um, you know, what are your thoughts on Zemo? And do you think that this transition worked for you in terms of going from that character to this character? Well, I have to say, again, he was actually probably one of my favorite characters, too, mm-hmm. just because of the way that he uh, portrayed that role, too, because it was kind of like, you know, the suave guy, but also he was kind of a little, you know, mischief kind of at the same time, like trying to run away. But I really like that one scene where he goes and goes to talk to the child, like, but he's like, oh, these guys, they're bad. Like, don't trust them. Like, don't talk to them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, wait, what is he doing? So he has that element of good but also if it benefits him mm-hmm. in his character so i also don't think that the character really thinks a lot of things through some of the times you know where there's that scene where you know we, we kind of kill someone and you know it's just like why do you do that and he's like mm, well, you know you just gotta do what you gotta do essentially but i think that it was an interesting element to see that character kind of evolve as well so it wasn't like he's not all that bad but he also wants to do what's best for him at the end of the day yeah he he's a he's one of my favorite characters too both in the comics and in in the shows and um you know, we're talking about mirror reflections. In some ways, uh, Baron Zemo is is kind of a, a weird reflection of John Walker, right? I mean, in some ways, as you just pointed out, Emily, he shares a lot of things in common with him. He's he's un, he's unscrupulous. He's you know he's ready to kill if he needs to, or even if it's just convenient for him. And yet, there are moments where we kind of sympathize with him, or at least I do, right? We have to remember that the reason he's involved in this is because the Avengers dropped the city on his family. I mean, this is pretty nasty when you this is one of the things I really like about Civil War is that they tried to deal with maybe not as well as we would have liked, but they tried to deal with the fallout of superheroes fighting. Right. And destroying whole communities, cities, continents even um, and that they need to be held responsible. And so on the one hand, you know, I I have to sympathize with them because he's not wrong necessarily. Who's going to hold these guys accountable okay, I'll do it. And the kind of secret agent Batman kind of character is, as you pointed out, um, Brian, it really works for Brule. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say that the casting in this whole show is, is really amazing. It, mm-hmm. Somebody other than Brule, I don't think would have been able to pull this off. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me about Zemo though, is that he is now cast as a Sokovian, um, which makes sense in the context of the MCU in the original source material, though, he's the son of, of um, Heinrich Zemo, right. Who is a Nazi. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the original series is that Heinrich Zemo, Baron Heinrich Zemo was one of Hitler's flunkies. He's a member of Hydra, did all of this terrible stuff. um, And then fought Captain America in the sixties uh, was killed, I think, at some point. And Helmut is now his son, you know, who goes on. He's not really a Nazi anymore, but, you know, he's the founder of the Masters of Evil. Mm-hmm. He's the founder of the Thunderbolts. Um, you know, and the whole idea of, a th- of the Thunderbolts, for those of you who don't know the comics, the Thunderbolts is a group of villains who pose as heroes to take advantage of the system, mm-hmm. which actually fits Zemo's character really well. 
Um, but it, I'm I'm really curious whether they're going to pursue Zemo in the future in the MCU because there's still room, right? Even though he's a Sokovian, they could have it that uh, Heinrich Zemo went to Sokovia instead of the United States. There could still be that interesting Hydra, mm-hmm. um, you know, Nazi tie. Um, and in fact, Zemo says, you came to me because I know about Hydra. This is the smartest thing you could have done or something to that effect. Um, so, yeah, he's a really interesting character, I think. But made just like with um, uh, with uh, Mackie and Stan, uh, Brule, I think, is really what makes the character work. Yeah. And, you know, um, that's actually interesting because they, they seem to be getting more interested in Zemo again in the comics, too. In the uh, current nonstop Spider-Man series, there's a uh, kind of subplot about Zemo kind of taking over Hydra and making it something different, mm-hmm. like basically my impression is he's taking it back from the fascists and just making it something different because he doesn't really identify with the fascist ideology so much, yeah. just more of the super villain ideology. Um, and so, uh, but it's interesting because like they can kind of do that. And he's a character that's always been sort of operating in kind of both those worlds. You can play him in a lot of different ways. And in this one, you know, he's a man of integrity on some level, mm-hmm. right? Like he basically, you know, kept his word. He got what he wanted. Um, and you know, he went with the Wakandans to the raft. Like they, he submitted, uh, and did exactly what he did out of respect, honestly, for Bucky. I think that, you know, Sam and Bucky kind of earned his respect and he's like, all right, I'll do it. But you know, as we see in the end, he's very much manipulating things from within the prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the argument to be made that, uh, you know, as much as people hated John Walker, Zemo does the same thing. He kills more flag smashers. Um, it's just that he does it, you know, in a different way. Um, so he's still very much kind of that antagonist. I, I mean, I know, again, still, I'm not sure if he's not right villain in the text, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's gonna be an interesting character to keep around. I'm so glad they brought him back for the show. Um, and I think that Thunderbolts is absolutely a thing that's going to happen. Like they've got so many of the pieces in place at this point, you know, they're going to do some kind of take on that. Maybe it's another show. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's this Captain America four that they're working on now with Mackie in the lead. Mm. Um, it's not clear, but it's, they're going to do something with that. He's too interesting a character to not you know, execute on in some, in some fashion in the future. Yeah. Can I add just two other comments about, uh, about Zemo? So Zemo, I think it does contribute. Not only is he a great character just for his, his kind of personality as both you and Emily have pointed out. I think Zemo does contribute, um, two really interesting, uh, points. So one of the things is, as you just pointed out, Brian, at least in this show, he's decidedly Mm anti-fascist, right? He's very skeptical of government power um, and he has these great lines uh, where he's talking with um, Bucky, I think, about the super soldier serum. And he says, look, anyone who wants that kind of power is corrupt mm-hmm. at the core, that there's this kind of sense of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, and we kind of see that work out, certainly with John Walker, as we said, but even with Carly. Right. There's the implication that the serum is having a negative effect on her mm-hmm. as she becomes increasingly violent. And so in the last scene, you know, she says, well, we'll just kill the hostages. And her fellow flag smashers look at her like, wait a minute, this is not what we signed on for. Right. So there's this interesting, you know, kind of commentary about giving in to power, giving in to temptation, giving into things like the soul, the super soldier serum and what that does to you. And of course, Bucky says, well, Steve Rogers. Uh, and Zemo has nice, you know, he says, touche, there's the exception, mm-hmm. right? But it's nevertheless an interesting commentary, I think, on people's temptations for power and what that does, you know, n- not to jump too far into another part of the MCU, 
Um, but you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Um, the other thing I wanted to point out just really quickly is there's this great scene um, just after uh, Sam and Bucky have, have have liberated Zemo, and they're uh, they're flying in a plane, I think, to go to Riga. Uh, and Sam um, invariably brings up uh, Marvin Gaye and Trouble Man uh, has his touch point. But I think Zemo actually has the best line that in some ways summarizes the entire series. And he says, Trouble Man is an excellent piece. He says, it's a masterpiece, James, complete, comprehensive. It captures the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if I agree with that assessment of Trouble Man specifically, but in some ways, Zemo is saying what the showrunners are trying to do with the Falcon and Winter Soldier, I think. Mm -hmm. Trying. <laughs> the word, trying. Maybe. But, um, you know, because that's one of the things that I've seen uh, this criticism kind of coming up a lot is that, you know, um, you know, with the Flag Smashers and Zemo and that kind of thing, we have characters who their motives are completely understandable, but they always, you know, but we can never fully see them as the hero because they choose violence, right? And that was one of the criticisms of Killmonger is that, Killmonger is right in wanting black liberation and that kind of thing. But, you know, because he, you know, kills people and, you know, you know, uh, turns the tools, of the, uh, uses the tools of the oppressors, he becomes, you know, now he's bad. Right. And so and that's one of the kind of common things is like, you know, you see a lot of people criticize the MCU for, for doing this kind of thing. And, and I think that there is something to that. The idea that, you know, it's always like, well, this is good, but you're violent or this is good. But, you know, you are there's something wrong with your plan. Um, and while I could certainly argue the point on Killmonger, I think the fact that he's trying to create empire and in, in really, you know, in places that were not historically hotbeds of like, you know, um, slave trade or anything like that. You know, one of his first targets is Hong Kong, which is not really part of the equation. Um, you know, he's really doing the empire and colonialism thing that he's railing against. But that's really neither here nor there. Um, you know, there is something to be said that the they're, they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it, too, in some ways. And so, you know, like a line like that, like. You know, I, it, it maybe speaks to what the writers are trying to like. We're trying to be this insightful thing, but we also have to play in kind of the sort of, you know, middle America kind of sandbox where we can never fully go endorse or challenge kind of the status quo in some ways. Um, we are getting a little light on time here, but there's a couple more things I wanted to hit before we sign off. Um, and that's one thing. So we have two characters now at the end of the series, both women who are playing poised to play a very significant role in these stories going forward. Um, Sharon Carter uh, is real to be the power broker. She's manipulating things behind the scenes. She's, you know, moving the supply of the super soldier serum and other things around. Um, at the end, she is reinstated as part of the U S government. And it's implied that she's going to be working with from, from within to sell secrets and access to weapons and that kind of thing. Um, and we also have, Julia Louis Dreyfus in the show as uh, uh, Contessa de Fontaine, um, a completely unexpected. Apparently, I had to like ferry her to set under like cover of darkness and all that. Um, you know, and and she kind of gets to be this sort of funhouse mirror version of Nick Fury. Um, that's really kind of fun, and I'm not entirely sure what she's after or what she's aiming. I mean, the implication is that this might be where we get Thunderbolts from. Um, but, uh, and Emily, we'll start with you. Um, one of the things I was kind of curious about thinking is that, um, is it where do you see this going? Is it significant that we have two women now potentially manipulating much of the Earthbound events of the MCU in the future? Well, um, I guess there's a couple ways you could look at that, but I, I definitely think that there is... Um, 
Well, I hope that there's potential to create like either like a second season or some type of part of uh, the Marvel universe of showing like connecting. I one thing that I really like about the the whole Marvel universe is that they're all somehow interconnected with the shows like you say for like WandaVision and like certain things. I'm like, okay, like wasn't quite sure what to make of that. But then after I'm like, okay, I really like this. And then same with this, um, this series that there were different elements that kept like intertwining that I'm like, oh, I'm familiar with this all of a sudden, but all of a sudden these two characters and especially with um, Ms. Dreyfus there, I was very surprised to see her and I, I find it, to be an interesting kind of parallel of that women that I think that most of culture focuses a lot on the male um, kind of importance. And then there's these two characters that are kind of running the background. It's the same if you look back with WandaVision too, you know, um, Catherine Hahn there, how she's like, surprise, it's all me. And so to have these one character that kind of seemed like she was on their side and all of a sudden it's like, surprise, here's where the plot unfolds. And this is kind of going on throughout like all, all cultures in one way or another. So uh, I really found that to be an interesting plot twist. I'm like, ooh, we have more to come. So. Yeah, talk about brilliant casting. Catherine Hahn as uh, Agatha Harkness is maybe the the most brilliant casting of recent memory, I think. And and the um uh, the theme song that they wrote specially for Agatha is is fantastic. Um, I agree, Emily. I you know what what's interesting to me as I think about it is the number of powerful women in this show. You know, clearly men are the center um, for whatever you want to think about. I mean, it is the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So we expect Sam and, and Bucky to be there. Daniel Brule, uh is there. But three really significant, four, uh, if we go back to, to Brian's comments, four women play really important roles. Uh, and that's, of course, Carly, the, 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 the primary villain is female. And then we get Fontaine um, and Carter also playing very important roles, apparently, as, as you said, manipulating much of the world. Uh, and Io, as well, as you talked about earlier, Brian, plays a really, all of the Dora Milaje, but but Io's role is really interesting, uh, uh, too, I think. Uh, and we could make other comments, too. Uh, you know, she's a, a, a supporting character, but Sam's sister, I think, plays an important kind of psychological role. She has a number of comments here and there to Sam about what he's doing and why he should or should not be doing. Uh, and, you know, kind of represents that grounded family element. Um, you know, and she's always the one who comes back and says, we can't sell the boat, right? We got to keep the family family together. So I agree. It's, it's really it's really powerful. I have to say, though, Brian, I, I, I'm a little bit um, disturbed by what, what, they're, what they're doing with Sharon Carter. So in the comics, Carter is, uh, you know, indisputably a good guy. Steve Rogers' love interest, as she's made out to be in the first couple of movies. And so it was a little bit shocking to me to, to see her now being unrepentantly on the up opposite side. Right. When she's in Madripoor as the power broker, I get it. She's been left out in the wind, as it were. She's, you know, been disavowed. She's got to make her way, use her skills to do whatever. But that final scene, when she's brought back into the government, it's implied that she might be going back into S.H.I.E.L.D. Is S.H.I.E.L.D. going to be reconstituted, perhaps? Um, you know, at that final scene where she makes the call and says, 
we're in a good position. I'm going to get all of these secrets to sell, mm-hmm. you know, indicates that Sharon Carter has become something different, um, something much darker uh, and grimmer uh, and perhaps even just evil. And so it makes me wonder what they're doing with these characters. Yeah, it could. It, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. Please. Uh, it could be what I'm speculating about. What I'd like to see, I think, is some kind of mirror images between Carter and Fontaine. So in the original in the original books, Fontaine starts out as a good guy, shield agent, Nick Fury's love interest, and it's eventually revealed that she's a Soviet mole during the Cold War, and then a member of Hydra, and in fact even takes over Hydra at some point. Yeah. So I'm wondering if they're doing something similar with Sharon Carter, where they want to do this kind of surprise thing where she turns out to be, you know, the, this long-term mole. Um, who has been running things for longer than we even expect. Uh, I'm not sure I like that, but I think it would be an interesting story that they might tell. Yeah, it's funny. My wife mentioned uh, something along the lines of Peggy's going to be so disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Because she's absolutely, uh, but, you know, but I think that part where she was basically left to her own devices, you know, there was, you know, Captain America could have spoken up for her. Somebody could have spoken up for her. Somebody Mm -hmm. could have done something, but nobody did as far as we can tell. Um, and so, I, and so on, on one level, I get it. It's an understandable motivation, you know. Um, and so in some ways, it's kind of interesting, the idea of power and how you gain it and how you lose it. Like, this is a recurring theme in a lot of the show. And this is her saying, this is the way I have found power. Mm-hmm. This is the way I found to survive. So it's it's alarming, but it also makes total sense based yep. on the story they've been telling. Um, you know, in, in a way that I think, you know, how John Walker's story ends where he's just, oh, I get to be U.S. agent again. I'm back. Yay. Um, that felt hollow to me. And, you know, I, and the the charitable reading I saw was like, well, OK, they're trying, like saying this is kind of a sinister moment and all that. But but the showrunners have said it's not. It's meant to be a heroic redeeming moment for him. And I'm like, I don't think you understand the story you're telling on some <laughs> right. level. And so, like, you know, and especially in that light, thinking about how Sharon is, I get it. Like, I get the reaction to be kind of being like, this is this this sucks or this isn't this isn't good. Um, but you know, it's 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 challenging, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. And you know, because you have so many different writers and creators working on all these different parts and interpretations of these stories. You know, it's hard to make everything always align the way that makes sense or is satisfactory. And that's maybe a problem with this kind of storytelling. Um, we are just to, uh, so I, I, I do want to kind of wrap things up here. Um, any final thoughts from either of you about the show or just like, you know, maybe something you like that we didn't talk about or kind of thoughts on where things might go? I do have to say there's the kind of the interpersonal kind of connection with Bucky and um, I forget the name of the character, but the elderly gentleman who had the connections with all the other, with the female bartender. I really liked that story, but I wish that went on more and wasn't left alone for so long because it was kind of like, I thought there was going to be more of a a spin with that and then all of a sudden it's just like oh at the end we're gonna toss in what the actual connections were but i would have liked to seen a little bit more of that but overall i really enjoyed the series and i'm gonna hopefully see what happens next with that yeah i agree with that emily i mean uh, nakashima is the character's character's name i think right and that's a really important moment for bucky i think because uh, you know sam has just told him that he needs to do the work right, to overcome it and confront, you know, tell people 
what he did. And he does that with Nakashima. So, um, you know, it's an important moment. I think, of course, he, we see then Bucky walking past the bar, basically saying this part of my life is over um, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. For me, Brian, one thing we didn't touch on is there's a, a really moving scene uh, towards the end of the series uh, when Sam goes back to talk to Isaiah Bradley uh, and he says to, to Isaiah, come with me, I want to show you something. Um, and they take him to the Smithsonian, to the Captain America exhibit, and there's now a statue of Isaiah Bradley um, that is put there and, and you know, right up about the experiments that were conducted and something along the lines of, you know, these African-Americans were forced against their will um, to be experimented on and to take this. And um, it's, a, it's important for a number of reasons, right? Thinking of some of the themes that we've talked about, it's the recognition, right? Finally, in the Smithsonian, there is this recognition of what happened in American history and we're taking ownership of it. But also on a personal level, you know, Isaiah at that point hugs Sam and is in tears and, you know, thanks him for what he, for what he's done. But it's, it's, it's also an important transformation for Isaiah, I think, following again along with the theme that we've been talking about. And Isaiah starts off the series saying, why would you ever do what the government wants you to do, Sam? Why would you take up the mantle of Captain America? I can't believe you would even think this. But when he sees what Sam is able to accomplish, not just as a hero, right, but to gain recognition for people, seems to me that Isaiah kind of comes around and says, okay, yeah, thank you for taking up the mantle. It's good to see a black man in Captain America's uniform. Um, so I think that's a really Im- important um, moment. And I'll just end like Emily, I'm really looking forward to either season two of this or Captain America four. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that they'll be able to do with these characters. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm in general, I, that's where I'm at too. I want to see more of Sam in particular as Captain America. I love that the last episode ends with the title changing to Captain America and the Winter Soldier. I thought that was a nice touch, though. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's like, well, Bucky's not really the Winter Soldier anymore, so what do we call him? <laughs> but hey, that's neither here nor there. Um, all right, so I want to thank you both for being on the show. Uh, your thoughts, just wonderful, like really interesting conversation. We could go for even longer. There's a lot to talk about here, even if it's not necessarily always hitting where it needs to hit. I think there's certainly a lot of interesting stuff to talk about with this show. Um, so just real quick, anything you want to plug, anything you want to talk about, like where can folks reach you if they want to see more of your work or anything like that? Yeah. So just real quickly, um, you asked for a plug, so I'll give you one. And so, uh, on one of your sister podcasts, uh, psych and stuff, I'm going to be on with, uh, Ryan and Georgina, I think in a couple of weeks talking about anger. Uh, and some of the history of anger, which maybe feeds into some of the things that we've talked about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for me, uh, please look for that coming up pretty soon. And um, then, as you said at the beginning, Brian, uh, I'm going to be going back to the classroom relatively soon. So I'm really looking forward to getting back to teach, teach history and talk about comics with students and, and people and so forth. So I just say thank you very much for having me on the show again. And Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Oh, it's, it's been fun talking about comics again with you. We haven't had a chance to do that in a while, so I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, and Emily? You can reach me on Instagram at BroadwayGirl603, and I believe on now Twitter because I had to create one just to keep in keep in touch with 
Dr. Card and all the serious fun stuff. Um, you could, I believe that's at M Emily Cotronea, C-O-T-R-O-N-E-A. And besides that, hopefully you'll uh, hear us again on serious fun. It's been a pleasure talking to you both and looking forward to listening to it after. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you both, uh, Dr. Cliff Ganyard, Emily Fecto, for coming on and talking about uh, the Falcon and Winter Soldier here on Serious Fun. And there you have it. My thanks once again to Dr. Cliff Ganyard and Emily Fecto. Serious Fun is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. The Phoenix Studios executive producer is Ryan Martin. Our production manager is Kate Farley. Uh, this episode, as all Serious Fun episodes are, produced by me. Uh, so thanks, me, I guess. I uh, want to give a special thanks to Emily Fecto for developing the promo for Serious Fun, as well as recording our new outro. Our graphic design is Kimberly Blees. Uh, and again, special thanks again to... Emily Fecto and Dr. Cliff Ganyard for being on the show this week. If you haven't already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Also head over to the website at uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out previous episodes of Serious Fun and all of the other shows. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Brian Carr, and thank you for listening. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, please visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.